Hey, I'm Will Ross. Hi, I'm Devin Scott. Today we're going to talk about lighting motivation. Welcome to Film Formally. Hey, where's that light coming from? That question lies at the heart of today's subject, lighting motivation. You may look at a scene and wonder, why is that part of the frame cast in shadow? Why is the light on that person's face soft? How did I get here? So for this episode, we're going to introduce the idea of motivated lighting to you and try to tease out what defines the different ideologies that govern how we motivate our lighting. In short, what reality is being created my God, what have I done? <laughs> um. We've got our associate producer, Paige, with us. Hi. She's, she, she's shot films. She's, she's taught how to light stuff. So has Devin. You know, so let, let's get some basic tenets of realism down here. We're assuming we're talking about movies that are shot in live action. Right. Uh, and we are trying to fool the audience. We are lying to them. We're trying to convince them that what they are looking at is some facsimile of our reality. Or a reality. Yeah. So therefore, um, what they see on screen should be you know, hopefully reasonably believable as a representation of reality. If you miscast an actor, yeah. you know, if an actor if you're trying to get like, you know, Steve Buscemi to play a to play a high school kid, you know, he goes, Hello fellow kids. Right. That's you know, that meme that's transparently a joke why but let, let, let's analyze that why is that a joke why don't we believe steve buscemi as a high school kid in that moment looks old <laughs> he looks old he looks old yeah. as shit yeah lighting is subject to the same kind of laws of cinematic realism as anything else in fact lighting was a key part of what you would consider classical hollywood realism the language of lighting helps convince the audience that what they're seeing is in fact a real thing happening in real time Anyway, as opposed to a falsehood, as opposed to the lie it actually is. Um, <laughs> the essential key to this is the idea of lighting motivation. When you set a scene in a space, you ought to have a really good idea of what's casting that light in the physical space. And lighting, you know, I think a common misconception of lighting motivation is that, you know, emotion is a motivation. It ain't motivation. Emotion doesn't cast light. Emotion's not going to light my light my living room emotion's not going to prevent a car accident you can't power headlights with emotion so Tell what you're saying the- here is that if i see a uh, if i'm watching a scene in a movie and i see like a bright light hitting the side of a character's face then the motivation of that light is like oh there's a window right over there in the scene that's casting that light or there's like a a, a lamp casting that light when in fact it might just be like a movie light that's casting that light our brains don't really see the world like movie cameras do. I mean, they kind of do if you stop and think about what you're seeing. That illusion is very easy to break. But, for example, if you're looking at someone and you're both like in a very dimly lit room, and if you actually look at their face and go, like, can I see this person's face? Oftentimes the answer is not really, right? If you're on the street, you know, walking down a dark alley for, you know. Try this sometime, folks. <laughs> You often really can't see much. You literally can't. But your brain is constantly filling in in the details. Cinema cameras don't work that way. Uh, Cameras have sensors that need light. So part of the 
paradox of movie lighting is that we're trying to convince the audience that what they're seeing is both real and lines up with how they see the world when in fact your brain is also lying to you. We're kind of emulating the way your brain lies to you while also trying to follow the rules of physics, which is actually a really difficult job. The other kind of way to explain motivation is there is a source or uh, an entity like, like the sun or a lamp or something that emits light that is corresponding to the light we're seeing. And often that source is off screen, but it's implied through the set design, the mm-hmm. location, things like that. Hold on a minute. So what you guys are saying is that, you know, you set up a light and you go like, ah, what's motivating the light is this part of the set over here, like this window or this or, you know, as not technically the window, the sun, the sun. Yeah, sure. The sun. (laughs) Windows don't cast light. Well, (laughs) yeah, come on, Will, you knew better. But so why not just use the window and the light coming through the window to light? Or why not just use the actual lamp and the light bulb to light the scene? Why go through this whole rigmarole? If you're Emmanuel Mm -hmm. Lebeski, you do it. Right. (laughs) It depends. Yeah, because often the thing is, one, with uh, the sun, for example, there's very little we can control. The sun, we can't move the sun. The sun's going to do what the sun wants. The clouds are going to do what the clouds want. Right. Uh, so we can't control all the different variables of the light that way. We can't control the direction. We can't control the quality. We can't control the intensity. So often those creative decisions that a cinematographer uh, is their toolkit extensively are limited when they aren't um, creating the source themselves. And same with a lamp in a room. Um, there's there's more you can do with that compared to the sun. You can move the lamp, put the shade on the lamp, or just have it as its own little light bulb. But often the problem is that it's not strong enough in the intensity. And that's kind of that difference Devin was describing between uh, cinema cameras and eyes. Often you need more light in camera world (laughs) and it's also worth noting that uh the things that light us in everyday life often do a really bad job of it yes Uh, that's so true right right now i'm in like the dark side of my room Uh, what's reaching me is just the fragments of that light so i'm actually really poorly lit right now so if you wanted to stage a scene where i'm in this dark part of the room it's going to be an uphill struggle because windows don't do a great job of lighting a room unless the window is really big often when we're lighting a scene we don't have to actually make it look exactly the way though it would. We, we're often doing this cheating. We're cheating the light, you know, like we have a window that's implied to be off screen or we can even see a little bit of the window. But the light is actually, you know, casting much farther uh, into the room than it naturally would. And that's again, like our eyes kind of fill in the gaps and they're like, oh, I see a window in the background. Oh, I I see that same sort of quality of light hitting that person's face. That makes sense. Even though, you know, mathematically, it wouldn't make sense for the light to reach that far. So hold on a minute. What, when you say quality of light, what does that mean? <laughs> quality generally refers to the softness of a source. You know, how big, how large and close it is to a subject. Um, the softer your source, the you know, less harsher shadows will be. Uh, if you want a quick example of a hard source and a soft source, two wildly different qualities. Um, a hard source would be the sun. Uh, it's extremely big, but it's also much farther away than it is big. So it's actually a very small source as far as we're concerned in terms of size, but it's also very bright. So you're lit by sunlight, you're going to cast a hard shadow. You can see a you know, Looney Tunes outline of yourself on the ground. Cloud light diffuses that sunlight, um, spreads it everywhere. So you don't cast a hard shadow when you're lit by clouds. Stepping out a Socratic character for a second, if this is a good example of, we're talking about a lot of sort of the 
filmmaker end of how you make these decisions. But on the viewer end, this is something that anyone can learn. Like the quality of light is something that's genuinely useful for anyone who's looking to better understand how and why an image succeeds or fails or or does what it does. As far as, you know, what is lighting motivation, right? It's to me, it's actually really simple. It's what does the audience think is lighting your scene? What snake oil are you selling the audience? You know, this is why, I mean, I tend to be a pretty staunch advocate of showing your lighting sources at some point in your scene or giving the audience the tools it needs to understand what the light source is, right? You don't actually need to show the exact window lighting your subject, but it is good to let the audience know, I think, in general, that there is a window in the scene and that it is currently daytime. Right? Those things help the audience to accept that window light. Um, if, if they're looking into a black box and there's no window, it doesn't quite play as a window, even though you've matched the exact quality of a window really well. Same thing with like a, like a chandelier on the ceiling. If all you're seeing is, you know, a nondescript room with kind of diffuse light coming from above, it can be just about anything. Um, and it doesn't really lend your scene a sense of place if you don't give the audience something to hold on to. And um, I think showing your practical is a great way to do that. Practical meaning a light source that is a part of the mise-en-scene. Often that's, again, that kind of subconscious level of the viewer understanding. You don't have to have like an insert shot of a window to get the audience to understand that, oh, this is the source. Mm -hmm. You know, it can just be in the wide. Uh, it can just be in one of the reverses or anything like that. And the audience just, audiences are smart. We all watch a lot of video. We all watch a lot of movies. We click into that very quickly. The more that a lighting, that your lighting setup, I mean, if you're going to use a fake light to light your scene, then you just make it match the quality of light of whatever's motivating it. You try to show the motivation at some point. And uh, you might cheat the light around to make it look nicer in general. And uh, and that's good. That's that's all there is to know about motivated lighting. Does that about sum it up? Oh, good student. A plus for Will. <laughs> you learn so fast. I'd say the majority of films made in the year, not many films are made in the year 2020. But the majority, <laughs> oh, God. majority of the films made in the modern era tend to be based on a certain ideology of lighting motivation that prioritizes the realism of the sources. I think what I really would love to dig into on this episode are the ways in which that breaks down on, on film sets um, ideologically. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the interplay between naturalistic, and I say that in quotes, lighting styles and three-point lighting and a more theatrical sensibility. There is a sort of cross-pollination uh, that I think uh, really derails the lighting consistency of a lot of films. And that's wishy-washiness or lack of clarity as to what kind of aesthetic ideology you're calling upon and implementing. What tradition you're falling into also plays into that. Because what I really want is to provoke some people, including myself, I think I have a long way to go on this, um, to become more self-aware of what ideologies in terms of lighting we are engaging in, right? Um, how are we creating our reality and what framework of decisions are we using to create that reality? The terms we use on film set, key light, fill light, backlight, motivation, really define our decision-making process. And we ought to be careful of what terms we use there. So let's talk about that. Yeah, and I think that term ideology is so important to emphasize. Um, when Devin was 
giving a definition of what realism means, I had to bite my tongue because um, I wanted to wait until we brought this part up because realism ultimately is a subjective term that has meant different things throughout different periods of film, throughout different periods of art in general. And what we accept as realistic as humans is often changing. So for example, if you think about acting, if you think about if you've ever seen a silent film, like um, an early film, the acting was very different than what we consider normal, realistic, quote unquote, acting nowadays. And often, you know, when you're in film school and you watch like a silent film or it's like classmates are watching a silent film for the first time. I remember hearing classmates being like, oh, it's so overacted. They're so over overdoing it. It's exaggerated. It's ridiculous. But that's partly just due to our contemporary eye of what realistic acting looks like nowadays. Yeah, we chatted about this a bit in quite a bit in our episode with Gil on experimental animation, the idea of realism versus what we ended up preferring was different ways of persuading the audience of the world that they're watching. Realism is also not just associated with aesthetic, but also with subject matter itself. You know, some people advocate for realism being specifically about normal, quote unquote, everyday people. British kitchen sink realism is an Mm. example where they try to show like destitute, like lower class, um, extremely desperate economic situations for regular people um, without anything resembling extraordinary resources at their disposal to solve their problems. Mm-hmm. And there's also, you know, certain elements of like Italian neorealism that are just structural. It's not even about what stories you tell, it's what parts of the stories you tell, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the kind of, I think the classic neorealist structure is the reason we're seeing the events on screen is that is the order they happen to the character in. <laughs> it's not yeah. because of some uh, top-down structure. It's no, no, we want to just faithfully depict this person's who's not real, but you know, we're trying to fool the audience into thinking it's real life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Man has um, bicycle stolen. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and I think I think it's kind of like another analog for the shifting realism of lighting um, is language. Who here speaks Latin? No one speaks Latin because it's a dead language, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a worse language. <laughs> All it means is that people do not speak it anymore. And I think the same applies to what I'd love to get into, which is classical Hollywood lighting. I think we can't really define modern documentary lighting because it's the starting point for most people's understanding of lighting. And I mean, don't mean lighting in documentary films, but what I would call documentary style lighting, quote unquote, realistic lighting in the modern era. Mm -hmm. I think it's best understood if we throw it into relief against theatrical lighting in early cinema, which is this, Um, essentially, uh, you know, early cinema, beyond once we got past like Lumiere Brothers stuff. But once we actually get into narrative fiction cinema, the beginnings of that, Assuming we're talking about, you know, interiors, shot in studios, um, those were largely lit. I mean, actually, a lot of them were lit by diffusing sunlight. But once we started to get into actual lighting design, early lighting design was largely based on the theatrical traditional lighting design. You have a lot of fixtures up on the rafters of the studio on a grid. You essentially light by building a fairly complex web of lighting fixtures, each designed for a specific role. Uh, My favorite ever... Example of this is in James Wong Howe's instructional video from the 70s yeah. that we're going to include in the show notes. I mean, this is the guy who shot uh, Sweet Smell of Success is probably the most overall acclaimed film that he's worked on. He shot 
Body and Soul. He shot Yankee Doodle Dandy. He shot Seconds. Yeah, he shot the live action stuff for Fantasia. If, if you make a list of the 10 most influential cinematographers ever, he's on it. One of the most amazing life stories of any cinematographer. I've He overcame a lot to get where he did. Um, oh, yeah. what's he, he was the first Asian American to ever win an Oscar, right? I think that's Period? correct. Yeah. I believe that's correct. Yeah, so the video is just James Wong Howe. He shows you this room, this basically unlit room with these two people sitting at a table playing chess. He starts saying, okay, so now we're going to try to light this room and uh you know and so let's turn on uh let's turn on the light outside the window there all right raise it up a little higher and then the like it's raised to the angle of light the the light shaft coming through the window uh points more down from above and then he goes okay now the now let's turn on a uh, light to uh we can't really see the the room too well and we want to be able to see the whole room let's turn on uh let's turn on a, the a big light for that and they turn on the light. one key element will he always says oh, that's fine yeah, that's all right. That's fine. Let's let's gel that light, and he puts an orange gel over the outside light to make it more orange. Let's put let's, another uh, gel let, on that light. Let's, let's treat the floor here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All, he and uses just, the like, word treatment, this, like, which I think is very telling. I yeah. mean, and it's all this like extremely, <laughs> extremely involved like stuff where I'm sure it's it would take like a whole lot more forethought than what you see in the. Oh yeah, it, it's video. like a cooking show where everything's preset. He's just walking you through like a, essentially turning lights on and off, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, you get this little peek at the decision making process of like one of the masters of classical hollywood lighting for color he'll he'll talk about how the scene is lit and it looks convincing but it doesn't have a mood like he'll say that kind of thing like it doesn't have a mood you know this i don't have the mood of the scene of the story and then he'll add in little lighting flourishes to create the mood the thing that throws any kind of modern cinematographer watching that off or you know modern viewer is how different the decision making process is than we're maybe used to um, when, for example, I am lighting, um, I will usually walk onto a set, you know, pre-production and go, okay, um, what would be lighting this space, right? What, what naturally comes to mind, right? If I'm in like a, I don't know, name a space, Will. Uh, a vault. I'm in a vault. I go, okay, so would this be lit by maybe fluorescent lightings in the ceiling? Or would you have the little like pot lights, uh, lighting that? Would there be a window with bars, right? I don't know. Vault probably doesn't have a window. Bars? But, I don't know. I, I'm assuming if a vault has a window, it's not just an unprojected window. I mean, but it wouldn't have a window. But, you know, you think, okay, what would be lighting that scene? And how can we... Does that work? Should we manufacture something else? Can we manipulate that into doing what we need to do dramatically, right? And aesthetically. But James Wong Howe, essentially, we need to light these characters to achieve a certain mood uh, mm-hmm. in an elegant way. And the fact that they're being lit by the sun or a candle seems secondary to the needs of lighting and moreover it's not like he's using a single source to light everything it is a whole lot of sources to kind of individually like tailor-made for every single piece of blocking in the scene yeah um and you know every single gesture has a light for it right it's you know if the floor is too dark it's not hey let's figure out a way to move our main source it's let's get another let's get our let's get light number 15 to treat the floor you know you, you have a decision making process in this video this instructional video um that is so alien to virtually any contemporary cinematographer whose name isn't like Janusz Kaminski because it's a look into a, a dead language a language that is no longer spoken by the vast majority of modern filmmakers but remember it, when 
Wang Hao was at the peak of his you know innovation in the 40s and 50s, um, his style of lighting, the style of lighting you see in that video, was actually considered quite naturalistic and even it wasn't as radical as like Greg Toland, but he cared more about lighting motivation than the vast majority of cinematographers of his era. Mm-hmm. It's not like he was super theatrical for his time. He was on the cutting edge. Yeah, like if you look at, uh, I mean, a, a contemporary of his that you could compare him to would be someone like Jack Cardiff, who uh, can just like create the most extravagant, like um, truly sometimes like motivated by emotion lighting. Well, Jack right? Cardiff's an interesting one because his main influence isn't film, it's painting. Mm-hmm. Um, to him, the closer he could get his frames looking like a a, uh, a Turner uh, or a Vermeer, the better for him and lighting motivation be damned. Uh, and if even depth in his frames be damned, he doesn't, his frames frustrated all rules of what is considered acceptable depth in cinema. It's amazing. Anyways, uh, to move on to an example of modern, uh, modern cinematography methods. There's a great special feature on the Wally Blu-ray that they talk about, oh, what, what, you know, what we, we should really figure out how we're going to light this in a more quote unquote natural way. Cause they had this vision for earth and like it look and like the lighting having a certain look and, and it having like a, a more um, contemporary kind of lighting style than they'd had um, up to this point. And, and that's not to say that they did that Pixar didn't have great cinematography. Like Sharon Callahan is, legitimately one of the most important cinematographers alive right now i'm really glad you mentioned sharon because i my biggest issue with that and we're going to also include this in the show notes little special feature is that they don't they pretty much erase her from that narrative and they, oh they throw terrible. her under the bus yeah it they sucks. throw her under the bus completely and like implicit, i still think ratatouille is the best looking pixar movie and that was all her Anyways. yeah implicit in in that whole featurette is like our movies have looked like crap up till now but anyway the premise of the video is like we like you know we're, we're gonna step up our game with the lighting a bit so let's bring in the best cinema or like the most acclaimed cinematographer in the world because we're pixar and we can afford to uh, roger deakins and so he comes in and just does a little workshop with them and it's it, what follows is basically Roger Deakins for about six, a minute of the video parodying the James Wong Howe video. I don't I don't think he was actually consciously doing that, but that's how that's how it registers when you watch it of like he sets up all these lighting sources for this person just sitting down and he's just adding stuff and just adding more crap. And you can see the effect that the light is having, but it's not actually that interesting. And then he goes like, now, uh, hold on. Look over there at uh, at that guy who's just uh, standing, and there's just one source of light on his face, and a little and, sliver of light. Yeah, a little sliver of light, and then it's being cut off by the by the by the little um panel on the on the light. It's called a barn door by the little barn door on the light, and it's just casting the other half of his sh- face in the <laughs> shadow. Which piece of lighting do you think is more interesting? And then everyone goes like, um, uh, the, the barn door, right? And it's like, Whatever well, congr- you say, congratulations Roger. on, <laughs> congratulations on the most, on like answering correctly, the most leading, uh, question in history. <laughs> but, uh, but everyone in the room goes like, oh, the, 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 the one you want us to, to like, and he goes, all right, let's start over then. <laughs> and that, that is kind of reflective of currently the more popularly acclaimed and utilized kind of school of lighting which is more of a design by subtraction style of fewer Mm -hmm. sources that are emulated with fewer lights um and you have to remember that in that um behind the scenes special roger even says like you know because they get him to explain why he did all this and everything later and he explains that you know 
he can't even help himself from laughing at a certain point. Like he 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 says, I'm gonna go for as long as I can. I'm gonna keep adding lights for as long as I can and see if anyone is like gonna say anything. And apparently the video is the lights that James Wong how does. Yeah, exactly. It just shows how different they were. I mean in fairness to the people in the room, who's gonna like tell Roger Deacons he's wrong? You know, his like weird theatrical lighting setup looked okay. Well, and he proved he can do that style like beyond a doubt on like especially Hail Caesar. Oh yeah, I mean th- it's an incredible looking movie. Anyway, I think I think that clip also to put even finer point on it reveals what is truly interesting. I think about Roger Deakins is that I think he's still a documentary filmmaker at heart, and right. that he finds the happenstance that occurs in day to day life far more interesting than anything he could personally design. Um, which is why I think his lighting is so evocative because he's essentially taking things that he's observed in day-to-day life, like, you know, in Skyfall, the famous billboard fight scene. You know, that's just... You just saw two people fighting in front of a billboard. (laughs) He's like, I can use this. (laughs) Um, But no, it it just feels so well observed as, as to like how something like that might look in reality. It's just, it's both simplified and blown up because he's taken away all the extraneous elements in that, that that could bleed into that and made it extremely big and operatic um, at the same time. Anyways, that's the only time I'm ever going to go long on Deacons on this podcast. <laughs> It'll happen again and you know it. But I think we've actually done an okay job of avoiding the Deacons on this show. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard because um, he's like the soul of an age level like artist. Like, what, like It's really tough. That whole idea where again the behind the scenes happenstance of that lighting is so much more interesting to him um and i think yeah as you say will that that's essentially what most modern cinematographers are trying to emulate right the feeling that this is not designed this just happened so is it just a push and pull between those two traditions that kind of more like add up lighting like expose the whole frame um, use a lot of different lights uh, to get things versus like um, individual sources. And how do you tell the difference, like to look at it? Number one, how do you tell the difference? Number two, what impact does it have artistically? Like we're kind of going behind the curtain with how the stuff is done. But for someone who's just going, okay, just like as a viewer, tell me what I need to know to understand the film better. What do you say to them about these different lighting styles and their impact? And, and it's, how also, to read them? it's good to remember like that's that's why this all matters too. Yeah. <laughs> Watching the film, just try and step outside the story for a second and ask yourself the lighting, analyze where the light is coming from. Characters, right? Analyze the direction it's coming from, the intensity, aka brightness of it. Analyze mm-hmm. the quality and the color and go, does this fit in with essentially the production design? Does this fit in with what the, where the scene takes place? And is it easy for me to put two and two together as to what is casting this light? Right. If if you're looking at a film that is more in the theatrical vein, usually that's very hard to answer. Um, and if you're looking at a film that's you know in the more modern post, you know, I say post Subrata Mitra world, it tends to be a lot easier to answer because you can go, oh, it's that window, it's that candle over there, it's that lamp, it's, it's the that, sun. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's the sun. So to me, that that's kind of how I suss it out. But once you start doing that, it becomes pretty easy to just know by looking, if you know what I mean. For someone who has never been on a film set, for someone who's never worked with lighting before, never thought in that way, I think we should talk about what they affect different types and uh, different ideologies of lighting can have on the viewer and how they view the film. When someone watches a film with this more theatrical style of lighting, 
it makes you more aware that it's lit. It makes you more aware of maybe the facade. A lot of the times when we see contemporary films doing that style of lighting, like, for example, Hail Caesar, it's because there is ultimately like a justification for that type of lighting because Hail Caesar is like all about movie production. Here's maybe a good movie to to use as the wrench in the works is Schindler's List. Um, Schindler's List, the first film collaboration between Steven Spielberg and the cinematographer who's shot pretty much everything he's done since, Janusz Kaminski. And Schindler's List, like the the big, like kind of like Spielberg's big line that he took in interviews and stuff was like, oh, I shot this basically like a documentary where I didn't storyboard it and I would just go on and like and just shoot the reality of the scene and like come up with angles on the spot and try to be spontaneous. Kaminsky in general, the cinematographer, is pretty famous for being, as Devin alluded to earlier, someone who has extremely worked over and in many ways artificial <laughs> looking lighting. Mm. Like if you look at Bridge of Spies, which is a very good looking movie. They made a very specific decision, which how they filmed Oscar Schindler, a.k.a. Liam Neeson in that movie was that all of the scenes not involving him, especially the scenes depicting the uh, stuff like the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto, that sort of thing. That is shot in a fairly lighting wise restrained way. It's mostly lit with natural light. Um, at least the exterior scenes are. But then the scenes with Liam Neeson, they made a very conscious decision to start out shooting him in a pretty theatrical style. You know, you have these like really intense cutters that show themselves on his eyes and that first scene with him at the the Nazi party party. He's lit in a massively over-the-top theatrical way, but as the story continues, um, he's lit in a more and more naturalistic way. Or so they say, I don't think it quite that quite comes across because it's, it's constantly pretty theatrical. I think it's an interesting kind of example of a fulcrum of ideologies Mm -hmm. where you have distinct uses of the two different kinds of ideologies to create a different impression. And now in Mm -hmm. fairness, that specific example from Schindler's List is is using the fact that our modern sensibilities um, consider more quote unquote naturalistic lighting to be more real or more authentic mm-hmm. um, as a means of commenting on Oscar Schindler as a character. Um, that's on one hand. But on the other hand, I mean, there's kind of two sides of the coin to that where, as we've said, um, in its own way, uh, uh, naturalistic lighting in films is its own kind of lie where mm-hmm. um, that light is being still being selected is still being in the color suite that is <laughs> the stuff in the camera is being treated in a certain way. The sensor of the camera is picking up the light differently than our eyes would. And all of this is known when it's being shot. A- another film that I wanted to bring up. As- um, I, I, I want to quickly put a little asterisk on that to kind of mm-hmm. help explain maybe how Kaminsky got to where he did artistically. And that's the um, National Film School at Wuj. Um, tends to, has a very clear tradition of lighting that kind of straddles the line between very over-the-top expressionism and gritty realism. Um, and I think, so you have cinematographers like Slavomir Ichiak, who um, also, like Kaminsky, um, combine those two things in really like over-the-top ways. Did um, films for Christoph Kieslowski, Three Colors. He shot all of Kieslowski's craziest looking stuff, basically. And even uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema uh, went to that school and uh, and none of them subscribe fully to the modern ideas of 
realism and lighting, but they cross over into it in key ways. Um, so there's a certain tradition there that I find very interesting. By point of comparison with another movie that very distinctly mixes different lighting styles and, and different lighting ideologies is The Quiet Man by John Ford, uh, which I would not call the landscape lighting of the film in general naturalistic because it's quite obviously boosted in a number of ways like shadows have fill lights like if someone's lit by the sun from the back then there's clearly some amount of light compensating uh to keep their light from just being thrown into blackness entirely but it's also because of that it's also clearly not like a naturalistic film oh yeah i mean if you see the behind the scenes photos like on all the close-ups they have like two brute arcs going which are like these big arc massive power daylight colored lights yeah and like the interiors um uh are even seem even more uh stylized especially to to contemporary eyes there's a scene in particular in the quiet man that takes place within a memory where john wayne flashes back to a boxing match without spoiling anything and the lighting in that scene is not it's not motivated by any realistic source (laughs) basically like it's it's a little though it's a little bit top lit um yeah yeah it feels modern because there's obvious uh kind of like quote-unquote flaws in the lighting and there's limited lighting sources like it's pretty much directly top lit and it's soft it's really soft yeah it's yeah. Uh, it's really soft but there's a lighting there's a light off to the side that's throwing a little bit of backlight but not actually doing all that much uh to the image and like the, the background is like abstracted right it takes place against a void and it's just this sudden uh sharp throw into a totally different ideology what I like about it and what I think is interesting is that it feels modern in some ways, but it doesn't feel naturalistic, uh, for lack of a better word. Mm. It's just using different ideologies of how to imagine the l- how light is cast in a scene um, in order to create a contrast between two different kinds of images. That is, the, the meaning is specifically contextual to the film is the point, right? Like when you look at the close up, this extraordinary close up of John Wayne in that scene, there is not another close up in the movie that remotely, remotely resembles it, right? The way that it looks different to the other close up just says a lot about the psychology of the past versus the psychology of the present. And especially, I mean, there's all these weird things where like he's the movie is about him visiting Ireland, which is his like the place where uh, he was born. So like there's it's him revisiting the past, but he's haunted by his more recent past in America. It's just an it's it's an interesting way of treating memory. Right. Like these contrasting these different styles. I I think we should talk about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and how that is taking the methodology of motivated light but completely playing with it and working it into the whole eos of dreams within the film. So there's a scene in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind where they go to abandoned house on a beach. I should mention shot by um, frequent, yeah, Ellen Curris, frequent (laughs) subject of this podcast. Yeah, the other person we're keep mentioning. But yeah, so what they did with that scene is it's an abandoned house on a beach. So there is no working lights, supposedly. So the characters walk in with flashlights and that's kind of justifying and motivating the lighting. But when you watch it kind of 
with this idea in mind of trying to like figure out what every element of that's lit is being sourced by you can very easily see like that it makes no sense because you know one character has a flashlight in her hand and then the other character is (laughs) got no other flashlight there's no other flashlight yet he's like brightly lit and it's it's the exact same sort of quality um and it's moving around like it's a flashlight but there is no actual thing that it could be like it doesn't really make sense like it's it looks almost like the camera operator has a flashlight attached <laughs> to them and we're like a third person watching and we're yeah like they're, they'll be in different room. rooms and stuff and <laughs> and, and, and well, like there's a moment where like one of the characters is pointing their flashlight at the floor and then it cuts and like the other character's lit by it yeah but it works but it all yeah. works like because it, it's good to remember that eternal sunshine of the spotless mind this is later in the film this is not taking place in reality it's taking place in memories yeah and memories that are being destroyed it kind of feels like a memory where you're like i kind of remember flashlights you know it's really unsettling sometimes we can get a little bit like oh well what would motivate this scene in this exact space okay robot robot the scene is lit you know like it 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 is important (laughs) to also think about like what are we trying to evoke and what are these characters going through and um, what is the logic of this film itself? It's, it's so brilliant because it perfectly evokes that feeling of reality falling apart. And these things all happened in this place, but we're seeing them out of order. Everything's being recombobulated mm-hmm. and, um, and nothing makes sense anymore, even though the elements that used to make sense are there. I think this gets to kind of what, what I wanted this to kind of lead up to in terms of what is the utility of knowing about these things for an audience member who has no intention of ever lighting a movie and and at the end is interested only in how can I watch and understand the movie better more than how can I watch and how can I know the behind the scenes processes, mm-hmm. which is that we're describing how understanding how lighting is motivated is a tool for you to be able to understand how the lighting that is being motivated is affecting you. So for example, Mm -hmm. having the flashlights strictly coming from the two characters or having, having the light that's coming from the flashlight comes strictly from those flashlights. And if the character's hand moves or gestures, then the light swings away and everything else is cast in darkness. And so if one character is behind the other holding a flashlight and the camera is in front of the character who's in the lead looking at that character, then that character's face is just going to be in blackness because there's no way that their face would be lit, right? And that yeah. would create an entirely different mood, right? Like maybe a more sinister or, or frightening mood um, um, than this sort of uh, reflective, pensive melancholy that ends up coming through from the scene and the flashlights. So that 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 is a tool for you, the viewer, to be able to understand how the light works, right? It's not just saying like, oh, this light creates a certain mood. It's saying like, oh, the light is being motivated as coming from here, but it's being manipulated in this way or they're they're handling that motivation that way, right? Strict adherence to sourcing can sometimes backfire a little. Like I think um, Bradford Young is one of my you know, favorite. I was just going to bring him up. Yeah. Um, cinematographers working. I want to bring up Solo <laughs> because... <laughs> oh, um, no his um he shot that film and i that film went through a production hell that i think and i blame no one who worked on that film for how it turned out i blame disney (laughs) (laughs) it's an interesting film because i think 
that um, Bradford Young's his ethos is basically how how much can we take away from the lighting and have it still be lit basically. And I think it, I mean, if you ever see Arrival, that it works beautifully there. Yeah. But all of his films are incredibly dark, and even when you look at the literal levels of the brightness levels of each pixel that he shoots they're darker than just about any cinematographer working in hollywood and that's usually an asset and he's kind of started a trend solo is interesting because there's a lot of scenes in that that are these happy-go-lucky adventure scenes or like witty banter but they're lit in a way that is just the most it looks like a rival it looks like a movie about depression <laughs> right it looks really dour yeah yeah it looks dour is a good way to put it and a lot of that is because of this rigorous adherence to what these motivated sources are actually doing and probably a lack of willingness to cheat that to the extent that it would need to be cheated to kind of light the scenes tonally in a way that I think makes sense for those moments. I think that's a lot of why Solo rings false for people because you're, you're being told one thing tonally from the visuals, but the script is another. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And like, if you compare it to the film you mentioned earlier, Arrival, probably the, one of the most uh, memorable lighting setups in that film is the space where the characters meet the aliens. And it's like this kind of empty room sort of space and then a big wall of light. And then the whole room is black otherwise. So there's nothing but a single source of negative fill. Yeah, exactly. So it's extremely high contrast. Yeah. And like that suits this awe. It feels imposing. Yeah, that's a good word. But yeah, so Will, you wanted to talk about the Greats of Wrath. <laughs> I want someone better at nice talking segue. about the Great. I want you to talk about the Grapes of Wrath. It's oh short. boy, the Grapes <laughs> of Wrath. What can you say about the Grapes of Wrath? <laughs> and so Greg Toland shot it, and it's might be my favorite piece of cinematography by Greg Toland is a scene in the Grapes of Wrath, and that's saying a lot because he shot a little film called Song of the South. No, he <laughs> shot a little film called <laughs> Citizen Kane. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Devin regrets Sorry. everything. <laughs> I regret everything. I do not endorse Song of the South. Um, <laughs> so The Great Sarath, there's one of my favorite moments of film lighting ever. And a whole history of film. Uh, Tom Jode, played by Henry Fonda, you know, goes back to the old homestead. And they find it, you know, they find it deserted. And the scene, though, is lit by the candles the characters are holding. Now, these candles are not what are actually again this was shot in like probably like 50 asa iso film in like 1940 so um a candle is not nearly enough to expose for that so obviously they augmented the candles with other sources and what greg tolan does though is for the time just incredibly radical where he lights the entire scene from one source per candle. So you have the candle, and depending on the shot, sometimes the source is hidden in a little gag behind the candle, or it's another light being held off camera. But it's the characters are always lit by one hard light coming from below uh, that is flickering. And this isn't an era where usually in a candlelit scene, you would have a whole dozens of fixtures around the room providing a general ambient lighting. And then you'd have a little gag that's known as, it's called a gag. It's a fake bright light hidden inside a fake candle um, to then pretend to be the candles. Um, and the idea would be, well, you kind of get what the characters are seeing. It's probably dark, but obviously we can't film that. No, Greg Tone is like, screw it, let's film that. But they're still using these theatrical style, hard directional fixtures to replicate the lighting. They're just using one per candle per character so each character is lit in this way that feels both incredibly naturalistic and very theatrical but moreover just incredibly powerfully it's um the tone set by that lighting just 
gets me. And 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 again, it's it's it almost feels like Greg Toland is running thirty years ahead of where film technology was at the time, coming up with lighting ideas using a methodology that would not be widespread in Hollywood at least until the early seventies, and even that was a struggle. We talked a lot before we recorded this podcast about how we didn't want to buy into a false dichotomy of like naturalism versus what Devin calls interventionism or or uh, modern documentary style versus classical Hollywood. Like we didn't want to buy into that too much. Uh, and I think Grapes of Wrath, um, as well as I think to some extent Schindler's List and Quiet Man, are, those are all good examples of films that frustrate those distinctions because to the extent that they seem to line up with one of those traditions more than another, they are using it towards different ends or they're using different technical means to achieve them. And that produces different results and, and therefore different effects on the viewer and on the film as a whole. Mm-hmm. So I think it all comes down to, uh, yeah, I feel like ideology and like connecting how that ideology spills into all your decision making and then how those decisions impact how your film is perceived and how yeah. people feel. And I think that we ought to be really aware of those ideologies. There is no neutral. No, there's no like standard way to light things. You're always engaging in some pattern of thought or another. I really try and remain disciplined about the terminology I use and how I think of things. Um, I, I had a really experience interesting experience on a music video I shot a few months ago where the lighting setup in that film, in that music video that I'm least happy with, was the music video is about a music artist, you know, the singer, who ends up creating a puppet that ends up usurping their throne as an artist and kind of taking over their career. It's quite a fun, fun project. Despite that kind of wackiness, uh, I mean, I, I lit it in the way I usually do, where everything is, you know, tends to be very grounded, motivated in practicals um, as much as possible. I tried to show what was lighting the scenes, you know, just my usual idling state artistically. Um, there was one scene where um, I had a moment of weakness, though, and a, a, a crew member uh, I don't know who it was. I don't want to throw anyone under a bus, but I, I don't think, I don't think <laughs> someone I don't, sabotaged me. Yeah, there's a there's a scene in a corridor where um, someone asked, "Do you want some backlight there?" And I had a moment of weakness, and I said yes. I and mean, I think that that's my least favorite piece of lighting in the whole film. I shouldn't have put that backlight there. And that's entirely my fault. Um, and here's why: because it's the one piece of lighting in the whole thing that I think just doesn't feel natural at all. I think it helps aesthetically in that yeah it defines the character against the wall a little more but i don't believe it and for me it all comes down to the word backlight actually where i do my utmost not to utter the word key light fill light or backlight when i'm on a film set because suddenly i'm thinking about it suddenly i'm thinking about how much is the shadow filled in i'm not thinking about uh, am, do i feel right with this and am i am not thinking does this feel germane to the set i'm thinking do I want more or less backlight? So I teach a course, Intro to Lighting and Camera, for women and non-binary folks. And one of the things I talk to everyone about, um, and everyone should know this, men included, is that the history of how, um, basically just how, it's, it's the exact same sort of conversation about how ideology affects our decision-making and that there is no neutral, basically, is you can see that directly in how portraiture lighting, like Devin was describing before, and how that influenced Hollywood lighting and such. Portraiture lighting in its own history had um, 
had a history of distinctly lighting men and women differently. And um, there was even, you know, magazine articles written about like, here are the exact things you should do when you're lighting a man. And here are the exact things you should do when lighting a woman. And Mm -hmm. those decisions are directly correlated to this idea um, they would write about back then. I I can give you the article so you can link it uh, for you guys, but directly related to the idea of lighting being a way to distinguish um, a subject's character, quote unquote. Basically, um, with men, they were often trying to light them in a way that, you know, emphasized their their wrinkles and the, the, the grittiness of their skin. And basically, they associated men with having um, more character. And I don't mean character like in the film way, like character in the sense of like, quality like defining feature the it builds character way yeah exactly builds character kind of way yeah, machismo that kind and of then thing, opposed sure. to that the way they would like women would be um to de-emphasize any sort of texture lines um to make them soft they would even like have them slightly out of focus um use big soft oh, yeah. lights most softening filters on cameras were designed for f- photographing women yeah, exactly. And like, that's, that's the thing is, so this started, you know, in the 1800s portraiture lighting, and, you know, you can see its influence in Hollywood cinema of the 50s, and how we have the the beauty lighting for women and how, you know, when we're doing a shot reverse shot, for some reason, the woman's slightly out of focus, and the man is completely crisp. Uh, and that's just completely down to like, the dichotomy, this false dichotomy of like, how we should like, men and how we should like women and 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 i mean of course like this false dichotomy of just man and woman too but um you know you can clearly see it then but those influences still reign true today and you know i I think it's just a really great example of there is no there is no neutral you know there is you know with every choice you're making it's it's tied in with ideology and it's tied in often with um an unknown history and language that you might not even be aware where it comes from yeah, I think, um, I mean, the whole development of film visuals is rife with heteronormative beauty standards and also racism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, racism is a whole other yeah. important well, topic, too. Um, not to abstract this too far, I think the root of this problem, aside, I mean, putting aside the whole sociological elements, just purely artistically, part of the root of this problem, I think, is that um, there's a results-based um, approach that a lot of people take to um, stuff like lighting where it's more about how you it's more about an end result you want to get to rather than a process you undertake to arrive at an end result that is unknown right and um, and I think for example beauty lighting to me is completely uninteresting I'm I I'm proud of the fact that I've never really thought about how flattering is a shot for my actors <laughs> because I don't <laughs> to the care. vein of them. <laughs> yeah, no, this is why actors hate working with me. Not true, folks. From my point of view, if I'm thinking about whether an actor looks good, I'm not thinking about what I should be thinking about. Is what is what is this shot making me feel? What is this story? What is this world I'm creating? And how am I getting there? Which is why I personally don't like using phrases on my film set that encourage those patterns of thought right stuff like key light which refers to the main light lighting your subject fill light right because as soon as you say let's put a fill in there you're assuming you need a fill and you're assuming that the th- that variable that is the fill is the crux of your aesthetic and to me that mm-hmm. could not be more backwards to what i like to do personally as a cinematographer you like building your formulas from the ground up 
as, as much as I think that we can't lay things on a spectrum of expressionism to naturalism or theatricality to natural, naturalism, um, we need to have an internal logic to what we're doing. And I think the more, you know, and again, this is to all the wannabe cinematographers out there, the more you can develop your own internal logic for how you light. And that just comes from looking inward um, and shooting things um, and going, does this feel like me? <laughs> then um, oh, I actually think some diary entries, guys. <laughs> I actually think like going, not just does this look good, but does this reflect how I personally see and feel the world is really important. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's kind of like there's two coins to this, two sides of the coin with two this coins. episode. So four sides. There's four sides. <laughs> I just feel like what you're saying, Devin, can be understood as like a student of cinematography and also like as someone trying to watch a film, understanding, I don't know, just more about like the art of cinematography and like the decision making that goes into that and specifically like the lighting decisions. Cause I think lighting is often one of the harder it's often one of the harder elements to kind of get your head wrapped around as a viewer because it's kind of just so like intangible. Did you ever have an like an aha moment on set where you're like, oh, I understand how lighting motivation works now? I think the best thing for me as a cinematographer is kind of what Devin was describing he does earlier is when you walk on set and you see what's already there and you you see what you're working with. Because like the hardest thing for me as a cinematographer is if it's just like a, a if we're shooting in a studio you know, and there's nothing and you have to start from the ground up. Like that's very mm. intimidating to me. This because, is why I really don't like shooting in like blank studios. Yeah. Cause then you, you have to kind of like completely start from nothing. And there's just that fear of unlimited choices. And I think when you can walk onto a location and, and see, okay, well, what can I do to connect us to this location? How can mm. I make this feel more real? And also one big thing for me was um, when I started doing more experimental work and playing with the idea of three-dimensionality in film and the idea that film ultimately is a two-dimensional medium trying to uh, basically lie to us that it's a three-dimensional medium. And like lighting is a huge part of that. Like there's always this talk of like separation between foreground and background. Um, that's one of the things that they kind of talk about a lot and teach you about with cinematography because, you know, um, separation between foreground and background allows us to see um, depth and depth ultimately is how we understand the world with our eyes. And that kind of connects back to like how we see the world because the world is ultimately 3D. Being able to like kind of get my head around that as a film student and being like, oh, it's all a farce. It's all a lie. Like we're just cheating. We're just... Yeah. Did you have like a moment like that, David, while you were in film school or while you were on a maybe after film school where like you started being like, oh, this is lighting motivation. This is what that whole concept is. I think you know, there was a slow transition I made and kind of, I started seeing it more geometrically where it was like, okay, so I need to, you know, like uh, lighting is, lighting is this dance between what's motivating the source and also the kind of aesthetic needs of a film. And to me, how I can best triangulate those is by thinking geometrically. I, I think I had a few, I've had a few aha moments in the past few years where I realized I didn't need what I think I needed to light something. And that's what I'm most proud of when I can just like, to me, the light sounds I'm most proud of are like the light table and still processing or, mm. um, or the, um, uh, or like the iPad and academia, which there was no extension of those practicals. So those were what they were, but figuring out how to 
finagle things on the set so that they work the way they were. Um, to me, those are some of my favorite shots I've ever done because they're so um, they're so unaffected in that way. Uh, it, mm. it, where I don't feel like I'm making the I don't feel like I'm sacrificing any aesthetic beauty to um, depict something the way I see it. Um, mm. And uh, I like that a lot, um, mm-hmm. especially if I can do that to create a feeling and a mood that I couldn't achieve if I was more overly interventionist with it. Yeah, that feeling mood is so important. There's what we did on the martyr was pretty fun, I think, where we, mm-hmm. you know, had that we we separated out the set into three colors and lit each room with practicals using yeah, a different color, mo- kind of lightly motivated by things, but really it was just a way to give the film a pattern. Fake ass uh, light, yeah, yeah, yeah it was, but it was real like, but fake though. Yeah, I was gonna say it's kind of like what you were saying earlier, Devin. How like when you make a movie about making a movie, you can get away with so much because we could yeah. just uh, have the lights that we wanted to you can show everything you show yeah. your movie light and you light with that and it's great yeah um, you, do, you don't have to worry as much it allowed us to have such a free form camera like a free moving camera the the film is about um a filmmaker right like making a short film because uh, we see what their camera sees and we see that what their shot looks like so you have to think about like okay how would this character light this film but also, how can we make this light also function in the way we want to light the 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 film proper? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like pretty unique in thinking about motivation. <laughs> I mean, Will, is, I know you're not a cinematographer, but you have been on the same film set as us. Um, are there any? <laughs> did you ha- do you have any kind of moments that stick out from personal experience? Well, part of what I've tried to come to. I mean, obviously, I talk with you guys a fair amount about this stuff, so I know your perspective really well. But I also am someone who has not spent the time intensively designing um, lighting on set as you. And so a lot of my knowledge for how to talk to y'all comes from me trying to mediate between the technical perspective of a craftsperson who works directly on the set and the direct effect on the audience. So my kind of moments of revelation have tended to come from stuff like the moment when you realize what sandwich lighting is. And sandwich lighting is when uh, you have two the, lights a person's side of their face is being lit from the side, from the from directly to the, each of their sides. And so it's Hoyt Van Hoyt Tema's entire career. Yeah. So the effect is that their cheeks and much of the side of their face is well lit. But closer to the center of their face, there's a shadow um, and stuff like realizing, oh, this is sandwich lit. Oh, why is this sandwich lit? Right. And the answer will be different from film to film. And a lot of as a viewer, discovering how to read an image comes from in distinguishing when there is a good answer from that and when there is not and what the answer might be on a film to film basis. So that's that's where it, that's where it comes from for me. Like I, I, I have to confess that like so much of my knowledge, um, both as a film viewer and a filmmaker, comes from the film strictly from the film viewing. Because even while I might technically comprehend what's being talked about, it's not until I understand how it affects the practice of viewing and understanding movies that it becomes something intuitive and important to me. Hopefully people learn a little bit about lighting motivation and both the process of it and 
how to think about it and how it can impact the way they watch movies from this. In the meantime, as always, thanks, Devin. And hey, Paige, thanks for hopping on for this one. It was fun. I agree. Well, that voice just now was Paige Smith, our associate producer. I'm really grateful to you listeners for listening to us. If you feel the same way about us, then, you know, leave us a rating and review on your preferred podcast service. You can also help us keep the show going at our Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash filmformally. You can find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at filmformally. Our Instagram is new. Join us. It's true. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. Till next time. And I'm going to...